Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good evening, saints. Uh, this evening, we are starting a new series in the book of Esther. Uh, we're going to be spending time in the book of Esther in the evening service for uh, quite a few months. So please do join me there. If you're struggling to find Esther, just go to the Psalms, and then go one book back, that's Job, and then one more book back, and you're in Esther. See? It's easy. <laughs> uh, we're going to spend some time in the book of Esther, and I was trying to think of a theme of what, you know, what the highlight, or what's the, how do we, what's the tagline for the book of Esther? I think the one that I've landed on is the book of Esther is a story of preservation. In the book of Esther, we find detailed for us in almost an obscure time, in a random time in the life of God's people, we find this unique story of how God kept his promise of preserving his people and ultimately preserving uh, the Messiah. Uh, and his lineage. Uh, if the story of Esther did not happen, uh, there's very little hope that the Messiah uh, would have been there, and you'll see why over the ensuing weeks. Uh, the main point, really, in the book of Esther is that there's, it's one of those books in the Bible that is, reads very literary. It's got a lot of literary intrigue. If you're interested in, in studying uh, how the Bible is put together and some of the literary devices uh, that are used in putting the Bible together by its authors. Uh, the book of Esther is, is an excellent one, and a short one, but an excellent one to study because it uses a lot of uh, Hebrew uh, dev literary devices, devices, and it is excellent in, this, in, this, in, this, in its sense of being a narrative. There is a... There is a, a a main character with a supporting cast. So the main character is Esther. The supporting cast, who's an important member of the cast, is Mordecai, who proves to be quite crucial and important. And then there is a villain, a big baddie, <laughs> throughout the story. And that big baddie is one whom we would not think. We would Im immediately think, especially in the setting that we're in, our minds would normally think that the king, the one who is oppressing the people, the one whom the people are under is the, is the big baddie, but he isn't actually. It's Haman who's the big baddie in the book of Esther. The, the villain is not actually uh, whom we would expect to be the villain. And so we will, we will unpack a lot of this over time, but through all of this, this is the story of how God preserves his people almost in a random time. My, my task today is really just to introduce us to the book of Esther. I'm going to go through the first chapter, kind of lay out what's going on for us, 
and then uh, we will uh, get into its meat over the next few weeks. So let me read for you Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the, priv- of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, that is. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, uh, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the, great, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zetha, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Queen Vashti refused to come at the, command, at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Queen Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. 
And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Well, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his household and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, this book, this first chapter, that is its job is to lay out the story of the book for us. It just lays out, this is, this, is kind of, this is the setting of the story, rather. Not the story, but the setting. The story begins in earnest in chapter 2, uh, involving our main character, Esther. But chapter 1 kind of sets the, the scene. And in its setting of the scene, there's really three, there's three movements, or there's three acts within Act 1 of the story, if you can allow me to say it that way. There's first the, the banquets, the three banquets. Then the second, the queen's refusal. And then there's third, the, the, the reprimand, or the, the dealing with the refusal. So those are the three things. That's the banquets, the refusal, uh, and the reprimand to the refusal. Now, before we go into all of that, I need to kind of set a scene so that we can understand where we are in biblical history. Um, this is around 486 B.C., so in your minds, I think uh, a little under 500 years before the time of the Lord Jesus. And what is happening at this time is you'll remember how God's people were brought out of Egypt, the, the Israelites, they were brought out of Egypt, and they came into their land and they were told that if you, if you keep the law of the Lord and you do what the Lord tells you, uh, you will stay in your land and stay in your la land forever, essentially. That's what, how the phrasing was speaking about. And as you know, the people rebelled over time. And when the people rebelled, there was a point where they rebelled to such a degree that their rebellion even reached the, the, the house of the king, King David's house, through his son Solomon. And the Lord split the kingdom between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom was King Solomon's line, and the northern kingdom was all the bad kings in Israel. We recently saw all of this in the Chronicles. And then what happened from there is that the, the, the northern kingdom was evil a lot, was, was evil quite a lot of the time, and they were taken away by the Assyrians into captivity and destroyed. So the northern kingdom was destroyed. It ended uh, as Israel. In fact, the Lord wrote a certificate of divorce to them. They were no longer considered Israel. They became a mixture of nations in the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. And the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom maintained some semblance because they had good kings in there, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, they had good kings. But there was a time in Hezekiah's life when he sinned, and the Lord said, because of what you did, speaking of the Babylon, because of what you did, and this is what Hezekiah did, he brought the Babylonians and he said to them, come and look at what beauty I have here. And he took them into the temple, Solomon's temple, and said, look at all the beautiful things I have, and look at all the, the treasures that I have. 
And so because of that, the Lord said, I'm going to bring the Babylonians back here because of what you've done and the other sins, and they're going to actually take all the things that you've just shown them. And because, and because of that then, they come, the Babylonians, they come around 530-something B.C. They come and they take everything um, in the, uh, after the time of Josiah. So around the Josiah, so this is Hezekiah's grandson. So they, they take everything and they take all the nobles, all the best people. They take them with them into Babylon. Now Babylon at that time is led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And over time, and this is, the, this is the same time when Jeremiah prophesies and tells them that God is going to do this, and they were not listening to him. Uh, the children of Josiah were not listening to Jeremiah, and then the Lord takes them into captivity. Some people are left, but he keeps coming back, taking the best people, leaving the poorest people in Judah. So Judah still exists, but now it, is, it lays in ruins, and only a few people live there. And what you have at that point is that the bulk and the best of Israel is now captured by the Babylonians. So the best, the nobles of Israel, the, the smartest people, the city builders, the engineers, you know, educated people such as yourself, the city dwellers, they're, they're the ones taken from, from, uh, from, and we're just left with the poor people, the people who, uneducated, poor people, they're the ones staying there. I'm not trying to actually brush you up. Maybe some of you are in that category. <laughs> Let me not make you feel too inflated about yourself. Okay, and those people are staying. And then what happens is, then over time, this now this empire of the Babylonians over time gets conquered by another one, the the Persians. They get conquered by the Persians, and you can really read all of this really neatly in the book of Daniel. It lays it out nicely when Nebuchadnezzar's there, and then Cyrus comes in, and then Darius, etc. They come in and they take over, and we're at the point now before the building, the rebuilding of the temple. So before Ezra, so we're after, we're after the, the taking of them, after Jeremiah has written his prophecies, but before Ezra and Nehemiah, when, the, when Judah, when the people are sent back to go and rebuild Judah. We're in that state. There are some people still left in Judah, but the bulk of the, of the people of God are scattered all over the now Persian empire. It was the it was, the, it was the Babylonian Empire, but now it's the Persian Empire. And here we are in the capital city of the Persian Empire. And the king of, this cap, the, king of the Persian Empire is, is one called Xerxes. When you're reading Ahasuerus, that's the, that's the Hebrew form of the name Xerxes. It's the, the, the term there is actually Xerxes. It's not Ahasuerus, literally. It's Xerxes. And Xerxes' kingdom, as you see there, runs throughout Asia, into Asia Minor, Turkey, into North Africa, all the way to Kush, or Ethiopia, as it said there. So this is a vast empire built really by the Assyrians, and later the Babylonians, and then now ruled all over by the, by the, uh, the Persians. So remember that, the, the people of God are scattered all over the place, and they are a minority. And in all of these places where they have been scattered across this, this world, they remain worshiping God. And when I say the people of God, I'm talking about those from Judah. 
Though they remain in small little pockets, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, remain in little small little pockets, some in Jerusalem, some here in Susa, others elsewhere. Of course, it's hard to track some of the names because some of the names have been changed from Babylonian to Persian. But all over these places, the people of God are, are in little little synagogues. They, this, this is where this idea of synagogues even begins because now they have to find little small little temples where they get together and worship the Lord. And that's, that's what they are, and, that, and that's the situation when we're in. And what happens is that this king, this Xerxes, decides for the sake of the plen- splendor of his kingdom to throw two massive parties. Look at the first party that he does. We're told here, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. This is the first banquet, the first party. He gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. And even the army of Persia and Mede and the nobles and governors of the provinces were invited to that party. And he showed throughout that party, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So if you're counting with our calendar, this guy spent half a year with all of his buddies and all the top people. And what is the purpose of this? Is this team building? Is this a team building exercise? Hey guys, we're running Persia. Let's get together and encourage one another. No. Is this a strategy meeting? How are we going to maintain the the kingdom? Let's have a a massive just time of gathering and feasting to to maintain the kingdom. No. The purpose that the stuff. Look at these things and look at that thing. If you haven't looked at it for the next five days, don't worry. There's like 136 more days. Come back and look at this. There's more. Keep going into the vaults. Look at that, and let's, let me walk you around. I'm sure he was holding tours on certain days. Now we're going to go and tour my bedroom. <laughs> let me show you. Let me show you my bed. Look at these gold ornaments of my bedroom. And that's what he's doing. The point of this, this, the vanity, is to show how beautiful and powerful everything is. And so here we find our first point. And our first point is here is that and really, that's the second, it's also the second party. The second party has the same thing. Because after the first party where he, where he shows this for 180 days, when those days were completed, then he invited everyone. Look, look at verse 5. And when those days were completed, he gave another party for all the people present in Susa, in the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden and here again, we're listed in verse 6 and 7, all the stuff that was there. That I've never, I don't even know what a mother of pearl is. But here it is. There's couches of gold, and they were all there. And in this second party, it's not just that, but it's also a bunch of drinking. Do you see verse 7? But the drinking, of course, doesn't come in your grandfather's cup. The drinking here is done in golden vessels. And the, the rule is... Let everybody do as they please. Drink. and There's no compulsion. There's no stopping you. Drink until you're sorted out. That's the idea of this party. So, our first point here. The kings of the world, what he's doing is not really unique to him. The kings of the world love to show their strength and their power. Isn't that right? 
If you were to think about the kings of the world today, we have presidents, and how do the presidents of the world show the strength of their power? Well, they say, let me fill up a stadium. Let's fill up the stadium to show you how many people's hearts I have, to show strength and show power and show my greatness. The, the kings of the world have this uh, massive understanding in their minds that they are big and important people, and so they're going to show their greatness and their power. But I want to show you the true king, the king of glory, what he does. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, this is what Paul says. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, listen to this now, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What did you, what did you catch there? The wisdom, the power, the riches of God are seen in God saving people from all tribes and peoples and languages. When the kings of the world are saying, listen, look at me and look at how great I am, this is what I have to offer, Christ, God, shows his greatness by saving people from all over. And the way that he shows his manifold wisdom, not his trinket wisdom, but how does Christ show his manifold wisdom, his manifold porphyry, his manifold mother of pearls, is that he takes people from all places, including Gentiles, in their sin, and he makes them holy and brand new, and then he displays them to the rulers and the principalities. What we saw happen in the book of Job have you seen Job? In other words, have you seen the work that I've done in Job? Whatever you can do, I'll show you what I'm able to do in a man. Look at what I've done to him. Go ahead. Go for him and see what will happen. And of course, because the work of God, the manifold wisdom, the manifold periphery of God was evident in Job such that even though Job was, was, was buffeted by everything, he never once cursed God. That's what God is able to do. And so while the kings of the world do this showing, showing off of what they have, really they are all puny. It's all puny. It's all fleeting. This guy is not going to last. This King Xerxes, while he can show you his kingdom, his kingdom is not going to last much longer than this. Just like Nebuchadnezzar before him. They're all, their kingdoms never last. But there's one whose kingdom lasts and his kingdom is built and the, 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 gold, the couches of gold, the silver, the mosaic pavement, the, the silver rods, the, 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 the white cotton curtains in his kingdom are the people that he has washed while they were filthy in their sin. He has cleansed them, and that's his. In fact, in many ways, the streets of gold are you. Streets of gold are you. Streets of gold is not just about gold in its own. You are the streets of gold. You are that great city that comes down. When it says, the, I've, I saw Jerusalem come down, he saw you come down. The people of God. Because if you read Revelation 21, it shows that while it seems like he's talking about a sissy, he's actually talking about a people. And that people is the people of God. Well, that's the first part. That's the banquet. Let's move quickly now to the refusal. 
Well, as part of all of this, well, that while this is happening and the people are getting drunk, Queen Vashti takes the woman and makes a feast for them. And it seems like that the, the reason that Queen Vashti has her own party, because of the way that this is structured here, you see in verse 8, For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And then immediately there we're told that Queen Vashti, at that moment, that's when we're told that Queen Vashti gave a feast for the women in the palace belonging to King Ahasuerus. And it seems as if Queen Vashti wanted to save and take the women away from this debauchery was happening here. There's a lot of drunkenness, because you see there's a lot of drunkenness, people drinking and all kinds of things happening. And remember when it says both great and small, it's showing you that there's nothing noble about what was happening here. So it was like the drinking that you'd see happen at a high class party in Santon, and the, and the drinking that you'd find happening, you know, in the corners of insert your village here. Okay, I'm not going to mention anybody's village in case somebody is unhappy, but insert your village here. The, it's the meeting together of the high, of the craziness of the, of the high-class parties in Santin and also the taverns in your village. It's all coming together, and you can imagine both of these things are debauched in their own way, but now they're together. And so Queen Vashti takes the woman away, and she makes a, a banquet for them, and it's implied that it's because of this drunkenness. But she would not escape because king, the king has Queen Vashti because she is very, very lovely to look at. She, by, every, by all means, we have to understand that she is most likely the prettiest woman around, Queen Vashti. And so the king now says, he takes his eunuchs and he says, go and fetch for me my wife. He probably is drunk. And he says, go and fetch her and show her to all of these men. Remember, all the women are in the other party. So come here and just display her. I want all of these men, you know, as they're all here, I want them to see the beauty that I get to take home. And Queen Vashti would not have it. She would not be, she will not be flaunted like that. She finds this thing detestable, this entire situation detestable. She made her own party because she doesn't want to be a part of this. And now you're telling her, that she should come and be flaunted here as, as one of your ornaments. And she says no. There's a lot to, to say about that, and unfortunately this is an evening service, so I do not have the time to say all of that, to say all that I would say about this. But I think it is important to, to mention two things. This is a tough situation here. On the one hand, what is being asked of King Vashti is detestable. It is horrific. Any man who asks his wife to be treated like this is not an honorable man at all. Certainly as a church we would deal with such a man. But on the other hand, this is the king. And the law states that the king's word must be accepted. And so while she might have felt some type of way about it, it was her duty as his wife to come out, satisfy his husband in that way, and then leave. However much she did not like it. And this is a challenging thing. And, and, and when people talk about this text, they always land on one side. They want to land on the side of, well, look at the injustice done to her. 
of course you can't expect to do this. And then the others want to land on the side, well, the, the ma- it's the, he's, the, he's, he's her husband, he's the king, this is what's supposed to happen. But the reality is that it's both, friends. And you must grow as a Christian to learn to live with those tensions. Sometimes those in authority ask ba- things that are soul-crunching of us. But if it is their position to do so, for, for us to do certain things, we have to do them. In this case, it's one of those. I fail to see only one side. I see both. And, because, and part of that is because of what follows after, and it is the re- reprimand. The detail that goes in here to this kingdom and how they work through, and even the, the logical reason that is given for why this is an issue. Did you notice the logical reason when the king calls his men to him and asks him, what must happen now? Because everybody heard this happening. What must happen? And look at just the logical way in which Memukan speaks. According to the law, look at what she has done. She has, she, has, she has done wrong because she has betrayed you and therefore has affected even the psyche and mind. She has not acted in a manner that befits her role as the exemplary woman in the kingdom. And so because of that, there's going to be chaos throughout the nation. There's going to be chaos. There's going to ha- women are no longer going to submit to their husbands because of this. And so because of that, we simply cannot let this slide. She must not come uh, before the king any longer, and you should find another one to take his place, take her place. So that, that this logical reasoning here shows you that it's not just a matter of, it's not, just a, it's not an easy answer. There is a point that is made by Memukan here, even when you take this towards Christianity. There is a point that is made by by Memukan here. There is those who have a a place of honor must act in ways that is exemplary even when they are suffering. Remember, church, I often say to you repeatedly, suffering does not give you a holiday from obedience. But he's evil to do this. You know, it's, it's not a good husband. He's not a good husband. He's a horrific husband to do this. And it's a hard thing. Um, and it is, it is a battle. Yeah, we, we have to deal with rulers who are, who are evil. But if it is within their right to call us to do certain things, as, as long as those things do not contravene the clear law of God, whatever our feelings are about that thing, if it does not contravene the clear law of God, we must do that even while we mourn that we are being made to do something that we feel is wrong or we feel hard done by. And so you have to live with that tension as a thinking and mature believer. I think one lesson we can say here, primary lesson here is, ladies, please choose your husbands very carefully. (laughs) I think let's just say that, okay? Choose your husband very carefully. It's much better to be single than to have King Ahasuerus as your husband. Amen? Amen. But what can we learn about this, this, this refusal? What can we learn about this refusal? In Luke 14, from this, Luke 14, verse 15 to 24, Jesus tells us this parable. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great party 
and invited many. And at that time for the, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say, Those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, you, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel the people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. What's the lesson? The lesson that in the light of the story, God used this, this rejection to save his people. Because this sets up how we get to Esther being the new queen. And remember, when you compare Esther and her people in light of this entire kingdom, they are nothing and small. The Jews from Judah at this point were just little trinkets here and there and there. They were nothing as a people. They were like in the parables, in the Lord's parable, they were like those lining the streets, just there, there, and thereabouts. But the Lord, because he wanted to preserve them, even found them from the streets and found Esther so that through Esther and her work, the Messiah's line might be preserved and there might not be a wiping out of the people of Judah. What are we learning here? That the gospel works in such ways that even when there's a refusal like this, even when there's a, a horrific thing that has happened like this, where the one who has a position does not do what is commiserate with their position, the Lord can always redeem and save. And so what I'll suggest to you, friends, is that even as we go deeper in the story, we must keep this in mind, that the Lord preserves his people, and the Lord works for the gospel, and that while the beautiful, exalted, pretty Vashtis reject the gospel, the Esthers of the world receive it. The beautiful, lovely to look at, Vashtis have the audacity to reject the gospel when they are being called to the, to the gospel. The nobles, the high and mighties. You remember what Paul says, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise, not many of you were, we can say, lovely to look at. I mean, just look at you. <laughs> That's more a joke for the guys, really. That's, sometimes I need to curb my human, just keep it for the guys. This is for the guys, not for the ladies. You guys, look at you. Gentlemen, I mean, look at this row here. It's, I mean, gentlemen. But even those like you, uh, from out there in the streets, the gospel has come to you to redeem you to come to God. And so let's praise God for this. Praise God for his work. And even as we get deeper into this book, that the Lord might renew in us a hope and a trust in his work of preservation. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, you are the great preserver, and you preserved the life of the Messiah even before his father was born. You were preserving his line. And in this story, we see wonderful works of yours silently working in the background to bring your people to safety.
Oh Lord, please continue your work in us. By looking at this, we are, we are having our own faith increased to trust you that you will keep us safe even on random days in random times. You are always working to keep us safe. Amen.